Welcome to Marriage, Family, and New Beginnings. This is a podcast mini-series where I will discuss several topics in relation to healing and repair of a damaged relationship or beginning a new healthier relationship using principles from The Family, A Proclamation to the World, studied more deeply through the book Successful Marriages and Families, Proclamation Principles and Research Perspectives from the BYU Studies and School of Family Life. Hello, welcome to episode three. In this episode, I dive into chapter 20, titled Repentance and Forgiveness. When we talk about forgiveness and repentance, there's a lot to cover, especially when it involves individual agency. We aren't going to cover everything that there is to cover, but we will cover some important pieces as it applies to relationships and working through them. Some people may choose not to repent, and similarly, some people may choose not to forgive. We're going to talk about both and how both are helpful and healing, and both can also be done whether the other person is involved or not. The book says, Repentance and forgiveness are two sides of the same coin and are frequently addressed together. The term interpersonal transgression implies the involvement of a victim and an offender who are at the time of the offense, connected through an ongoing relationship. Although the process of repentance and forgiveness is interpersonal, successful outcomes are profoundly intrapersonal, experienced individually, apart from or in addition to any interpersonal interaction. The noted forgiveness researcher Worthington wrote, Forgiveness does not occur in a relationship. It occurs within the forgiver. And I love how that denotes that It's an inner gift that you give yourself, not necessarily um, something that you give to another person, although you are at the same time. So the book talks about three types of interpersonal forgiveness. It says, by implication, the repentance forgiveness scenario involves an offender and a victim. However, in the first type of forgiveness, The interpersonal transgressions are such that both parties are at fault, and the roles of victim and offender are shared. In this case, the resulting process is mutual forgiveness. I tend to think that this kind of forgiveness happens in most healthy relationships. Um, When people are both needing to apologize, uh, it could be for something that they said, or maybe the way they behaved under high-stress situations. But they're just normal occurrences that may may happen in, in virtually any marriage. The second type, a book calls bilateral forgiveness. It says, bilateral forgiveness presumes there has been wrongdoing on only one side, and forgiveness comes in response to an apology and repentance. The second type of forgiveness is most common in these in these relationships that we're talking about, the ones that are affected by betrayal. And it can take time, like I mentioned in the previous episode. It's not it's not always an immediate thing that comes. So, the third type of forgiveness, the offender will not or cannot participate in this type of healing, and therefore unilateral or one-way forgiveness can be achieved by the victim without the offender's apology or repentance. So the third type of repentance here that it's talking about 
can also be common in situations of betrayal where the offending spouse refuses to seek help and continues to blame shift and not accept responsibility for his or her actions. While you certainly need the Savior for all types of forgiveness, I feel like this one most definitely will require the Savior's healing power because the other person is not willing to offer any kind of repentance or apology. So why repent? The book addresses reasons that are backed up by social science as well as doctrinal reasons why repentance is important. In regards to social science, it says, Mental health experts acknowledge that it is impossible to address emotional and physical well-being without considering the relevance of repentance and forgiveness. In regards to doctrinal reasons, it says, Likewise, the words of ancient and modern prophets affirm that repentance and forgiveness are central to the gospel plan. Elder Dallin H. Oaks identified the instruction to repent as the gospel's most frequent message and defined repentance as transformation, saying, The gospel of Jesus Christ challenges us to change. Repenting means giving up all of our practices, personal, family, ethnic, and national, that are contrary to the commandments of God. The purpose of the gospel is to transform common creatures into celestial citizens, and that requires change. So, Just as I explained earlier, repentance is important, and so is forgiveness. I'm going to read from the chapter again, um, talking about the social science reasoning for forgiveness, as well as the doctrinal reasoning. So in regards to social science, why do we forgive? It says, Individuals and families who are able to forgive important transgressions are likely to have better emotional and physical health and positive emotions improve health in a variety of ways. Numerous studies have demonstrated a relationship between forgiveness and well-being. Unforgiveness is considered a stress reaction in response to a perceived threat. This comes from Worthington again. And the emotions associated with unforgiveness, such as resentment, hostility, blame, and fear, have been linked to health risks. Now, the book doesn't expound on the particular studies or the health risks, but I know that there are books and other resources, and you can definitely do plenty of your own research if you want to see all the impacts that are had. For now, I want to move on to the doctrinal reasons. The book states that, similarly, divine mandate is one reason many Latter-day Saints seek to forgive. Christ taught that forgiving is prerequisite to being forgiven. And when ye stand praying, forgive, if ye have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. I want to point out here that forgiveness is a blessing, and this scripture can seem somewhat frightening when you're in a position of being betrayed. It might make you feel like you need to immediately forgive. I want to reassure you that you do not need to rush forgiveness. Just like repentance, forgiveness is a process that takes time. In this chapter, they actually point this fact out along with the reminder that forgiveness also doesn't equal condoning or forgetting. 
It says, several authors noted that forgiveness should not be confused with legal pardon, condoning, or forgetting. It is also distinct from reconciliation. These are not necessary for forgiveness and its attendant benefits for the, big, for the victim to be obtained. Rye and Pergament argued that conceptualizing forgiveness using these distinctions allows people to forgive without compromising their safety or their right to pursue social justice. And I love that piece, um, how it kind of breaks it down. The book also continues saying, It's natural to be angry and even vindictive when one has been wronged. Some victims are uncomfortable with these emotions and try to skip straight to reconciliation without adequately acknowledging the wrong or allowing time for meaningful repentance and forgiveness to take place. But forgiveness demands recognition of wrongful behavior. Murphy warned that the superficial forgiveness, or cheap grace, and explained that hasty forgiveness can undermine self-respect, respect for the moral order, respect for the wrongdoer, and even respect for forgiveness. Elaborating, Murphy explained that resentment legitimizes the wrongness and empowers the victim to seek redress. Just as indignation over the mistreatment of others stands as an emotional testimony that we care about them and their rights, so does resentment stand as an emotional testimony that we care about ourselves and our rights. I love how the book explains this so eloquently. It is necessary to feel some of these emotions to spur us to action to make changes in our lives. I know that as someone who experienced this long term, I was someone who offered this superficial forgiveness that they talk about, and I suffered for it. Um, Eventually, though, I was able to allow the anger and resentment to spur me to take action for myself. I testify that it sure is a process, and it requires a lot of processing. However, forgiveness can be reached, and while trust is slower to come, the freedom that forgiveness offers is a blessing even without complete restoration of trust. Now, I want to briefly cover some of what repentance is and includes. So what is repentance? The book says, Repentance is a process of enhancing internal awareness and interpersonal accountability. The offender not only acknowledges wrongdoing, but also makes reparation. Inwardly, repentance is achieved through humility and empathy, making it possible for the offenders to see themselves as they would, as they wounded, as those they wounded, with a new perspective that is refreshing and motivating. Humility is the opposite of arrogance, narcissism, or pride. Transgressors who are truly contrite are able to admit their mistakes and make every effort to accept the consequences and conditions desired by the offended party without blaming others or justifying their actions. So while humility helps transgressors see themselves differently, empathy helps them to see their victims differently. True empathy is experienced as a feeling, not merely a cognition. It is not enough to say, I know I hurt you. With empathy, the offender can know how it feels to be the offended person. So that's what repentance is. And now that we have more of an understanding of what repentance is, 
I want to talk about how an apology fits into repentance. The passage I just shared talked about acknowledging wrongdoing. That generally comes by way of apology. So the book states, a successful apology includes several parts. First, an accurate acknowledgement of the offense. Then an appropriate expression of regret, remorse, or sorrow. Then a suitable offer of repayment or restitution. And finally, a pledge for behavior to reform and an assurance that the offense is not repeated. It also points out in this section that when offering an apology, it's, it's going to fail if any of the steps are missing or inadequate. For example, an offender might minimize the offense or not recognize the injury suffered by the victim, resulting in a less than authentic apology. From my own experience and shared experiences of others, not all the time, but minimizing is a frequent behavior when a spouse is entrenched in addiction, and this makes apologies very difficult to achieve to achieve until some more substantial recovery work has been done. Now the book goes on and states the following. However, in the case of severe interpersonal transgressions, it takes more than an apology to restore love and trustworthiness. It takes genuine repentance. So we're going to go in a little bit deeper into repentance and kind of give some more definition to it. In the book, one of the researchers named Holman defined repentance. He said this, It is a decisive turning away from thoughts, words, and deeds that have betrayed love and trust, and a wholehearted turning towards attitudes and activities that can restore love and trust to the relationship. It includes confession and a commitment to consistent changed behavior over time. Moreover, the book explains that repentance is more than apology. It is a humbling, all-encompassing experience. It requires offenders to see themselves through the eyes of the injured party as well as through the eyes of God. So in the Church of Jesus Christ, we have the steps of repentance, and they include to first recognize the sin, Second, to feel sorrow for the sin. And this is a godly sorrow, not just a I got caught sorrow. Then forsake the sin, which is a complete turning away from the sin, which it mentioned a wholehearted turning toward attitudes and activities that restore love and trust. And then step four is confess. And step five is make restitution. So the off, another quote from the book states that the offender bears the burden of change in order to restore trust and repair relationships. So it's not the victim's responsibility to restore that trust or or repair that relationship. Additionally, it says that repentance also does not necessarily elicit forgiveness or result in reconciliation. Now, I add that I added that piece just so that the betrayed spouses can understand that when a spouse 
repents for their acting out, it doesn't hand them an automatic badge of forgiveness. Like I talked about earlier, that can take time. And in some instances, a very long time, depending on the severity of the abuse and the actions of the, of the offending spouse. Um, and that may include the inability to achieve reconciliation due to divorce, which sometimes can happen as well. So now let's move on to forgiving. We already talked a little bit about what forgiving is not. For our purpose, I will focus mostly on forgiveness as it pertains to these serious offenses within marriage, although the information can be applied outside marriages as well within our families. So, forgiving. Uh, the book says, Victims of serious offenses, offenses sometimes take one of two opposing views. Either they are reluctant to forgive because they fear that the process will leave them with even less power and they will allow them, and that will allow them to be hurt again, or they're intimidated by a religious mandate and know they must forgive, but they don't know how. And this is, this is such a battle these, in these instances to find forgiveness. I, I especially relate to the idea that victims often just don't know how to get to forgiveness. Um, it's a difficult concept, especially if there's ongoing uh, infidelity happening. While the chapter offers a couple of different processes, it also says this about victims. For victims, forgiveness means being released from anger and developing empathy for the offender. Genuine forgiveness is a process, not a product. It is hard work and it takes time. It is a voluntary act that gives meaning to the wound and frees the injured person from the ills of bitterness and resentment. So the first process the book describes comes from a social scientist named Worthington. He was saying has been mentioned a couple times. And it's called the cognitive behavioral five-step process. So the first step is to recall the hurt. And it's human says it's human nature to protect ourselves from pain. Too often we try to deny or forget the pain of the offense and avoid the discomfort associated with addressing that offense in an interpersonal relationship. In order to forgive, we have to be clear about the wrongdoing and acknowledge the injury. That can be hard, um, especially especially when you're unsure how to forgive, like we talked about earlier. Um, but hopefully this information is helpful. So the second step is empathize. Empathy involves borrowing the lens of another person. So we see something from their point of view. So in order to forgive, it's important that we perhaps understand the transgressor's feeling. Was the offense committed knowingly or was it an honest mistake? Were there pressures that influenced the offender to commit the offense? There are several questions that you can ask in this um, to kind of find empathy. The third step is offer the altruistic gift of forgiveness. It says forgiving with altruism is easier when the victim is humbled by an awareness of his or her own shortcomings and offenses with special gratitude for those occasions when he or she was freely forgiven. Number four is commit publicly to forgive. 
The victim has a better chance for successful forgiveness if he or she verbalizes the forgiveness commitment to another person. For example, telling a friend or counselor about the decision. Some victims have formalized their decision by writing a letter, making a journal entry, or creating a certificate of forgiveness. Step 5. Hold on to forgiveness. After completing the forgiveness process, victims may still be haunted on occasion by the pain of the offense. During this stage, it's important to move forward when thoughts revert to the painful injury. The victim is reminded that the decision to forgive has already been made. He or she does not have to repeat that process. With all that said, some of these things may sound incredibly difficult, especially if you're still not quite there yet. If you remember anything about any of this, remember that it's a process. You do not have to be perfect. The Savior can help you where you struggle. Now, let's move on to the topic of reconciliation. There are many points made about reconciliation, and some there are times when it's wise, and there are times when it's not wise. So the book says the following about reconciliation. Reconciliation is often, but not always, the desired result of repentance and forgiveness. In some cases, reconciliation is not possible, and in some cases, reconciliation may not be prudent. Reopening a strained relationship may be uncomfortable and awkward in addition to painful. For those victims who have moved on, the pain and risk may not be worth it. In other cases, Reconciliation may not be desirable. It might be unhealthy or or unsafe for a victim to put him or herself back in harm's way. These cases in reference to marriage is when divorces may occur. And this is surely a painful process. I want to point out again that more than half of the people who decided to work on their marriage find happiness and restoration. With that being said, I want to talk a little bit more about reconciliation and what that process involves. So the book says, Reconciliation requires a restoration of trust and a willingness to have ongoing contact. If that trust and willingness are not achievable, reconciliation is not wise. People generally work at reconciliation because they have invested a lot in the relationship and do not like to accept failure. In addition, they are likely to still value the other person and the relationship, and they recognize that if nothing is done to mend the relationship, it is likely to worsen. Reconciliation is a give-and-take process wherein the parties gradually move closer to each other. I like how it says that you gradually move closer to, to each other. It reaffirms again the idea that these things are processes and they take time. None of this is immediate. Further, the book says, Reconciliation is a process of renegotiating the rules of the relationship, reframing shared memories, and in the case of couples, starting over again with a second courtship. At some point, future planning will be an essential component in the process when partners or family members collectively plan activities or set mutual goals. They are imagining a future together and moving away from a painful past. I love how it says in the case of couples, you start over again with a second courtship. This is a topic that we'll kind of be talking more about in a later episode, but I wanted to point it out again because I feel like it's important to remember that 
you are building a new relationship, even if it is with the same person. The relationship is going to be very different from what it was before the infidelity, but it opens up a chance for a clean slate with new relationship goals and dreams. Finally, I want to finish up talking about a process called one-way forgiveness. In a betrayal situation, it has happened that victims have offenders who either cannot or will not repent, which makes forgiveness even more difficult to come by. These are often the cases that end in divorce, and they can often leave the offended partner in a place that is, it feels really difficult to overcome. So the book states, for victims whose offenders cannot or will not repent, forgiveness is understandably more difficult. Although reconciliation may not be feasible or even desirable, forgiveness is still an important part of the healing process. All victims need to be relieved of the burden of resentment and the entanglements of a painful relationship. Social scientist Gauvier asserted that no victim will benefit psychologically or morally from clinging to a resentful sense of her own victimhood and dwelling on the past. So, The book goes on then to explain this process of what they call one-way forgiveness. In this process, the victim repents on behalf of the offender. Now, this sounds a little off at first, but hear me out. So what, what it's not saying, it's not saying that the victim takes responsibility for the offender's actions. And it also doesn't mean that the offender is going to get away without repenting for themselves. The true repentance is always, 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 always going to be the responsibility of the offender. What it does mean is that the victim is able to accomplish that same forgiveness that might have been achieved if the offender actually had repented and apologized. So this is how the book lays out this five-step one-way forgiveness process, and it uses the same steps that we mentioned earlier in repentance, but with a different approach. So I'm going to add some additional explanation um, that the book lays out to kind of differentiate this type of repentance on behalf of versus the regular repentance that somebody would do for their own transgressions. So the first step is to recognize the offense. So the offender is not the only one who is responsible for recognizing the wrongdoing. The victim must be willing to name the offense and claim the injury. What moral civil or civil laws were broken? How did the betraying event break those rules? What injury was sustained and what were the consequences? What is the meaning of the injury? How was the victim's belief system changed and how is he or she different? The second step is sorrow for the offense. Obviously, the offender should feel sorrow because of the transgression, but grieving is is also an essential element for the victim in the healing process. For many victims, sorrow has been averted or camouflaged by anger, and in giving up that anger, they must be willing to feel the sadness that gave rise to the anger. Sorrow is a natural response to loss, and will come 
as the victim is able to name the offense and claim the injury, identifying and grieving all the accompanying losses. However, sorrow should be temporary, one step in the healing process, not a perpetual state of being. Third step is disclose. So the offender's unwillingness or inability to confess does not stop the victim from disclosing the offense. The victim confesses on behalf of the offender as he or she breaks the silence and shares the details of the offense with someone, perhaps a confidant, a therapist, legal authority, or a religious leader. By disclosing, the victim moves out of the world of confusion and shame and is now ready to place the blame where it belongs. Blaming is prerequisite to forgiving. If there's no blame, there's no need to forgive. In order to forgive, the victim must recognize that something was wrong and someone was at fault. Once that is established, the process of forgiving and healing can proceed. So number four is avoid the the offending behavior. In the repentance process, offenders are expected to commit to never engage in the sinful behavior again. So in this case, victims cannot force offenders to change their behavior but they can take responsibility for protecting themselves and others from further victimization. During this stage, victims take responsibility for their happiness and safety. They establish boundaries and make important decisions about the people they want in their lives and how they want to be treated by them. During this stage, victims develop guidelines for determining a person's trustworthiness and establish common sense rules of conduct for themselves in order not to place themselves at risk. And then the last step is to make restitution. Now, restitution is essential in restoring order and wholeness to the life of the injured person. Another way to think of restitution is balancing the scales. Balance is destroyed when one person takes choice away from another while at the same time increasing his or her own choices. Balance is restored to uneven scales by either taking away from the heavier side or adding to the lighter side. Likewise, in dealing with serious offenses, balance is restored by punishing the offender or by loading resources to the depleted reserves of the victim. So instead of expanding energy on retaliation, the victim can find ways to replenish his or her own depleted reserves. Some possibilities might include joining a support group, obtaining additional education or training, seeking a better job, rejuvenating one's social life, starting a new hobby, or exploring new self-nurturing activities. Through these steps, the injured party is able to move from victim to survivor, accomplishing for him or herself what would be accomplished if the offender were truly contrite and had sincerely repented. Ultimately, forgiveness is for the benefit of the victim. It is also important to reiterate that forgiveness is not a simple process and the victim should not feel hurried. Working through painful memories and grieving significant losses requires time and considerate, considerable emotional energy. So again, there is no shortcut. And ultimately, in the end, it all comes back to the atonement of Jesus Christ that we can achieve not only the gift of repentance, but also forgiveness and healing. In the next episode, 
I will discuss the matter of divorce. Because again, if someone's not willing to do the work, that may be the end result. So thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the next one. I am not a professional, and this podcast is not meant to be a replacement for professional advice. The information presented here simply reflects my own experience with others and observations on the subjects studied within the proclamation, as well as within the book, Successful Marriages and Families, Proclamation Principles and Research Perspectives from the BYU Studies and School of Family Life. This is not meant to replace individual or marriage therapy.